Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. There's a line that sits somewhere out there on the waters of Hobson's Bay. It's not a real line, of course, drawn on the top of the sea or etched along its floor beneath the waves, or even a serried row of bobbing buoys that you could make out somehow from the shoreside or sailing in from the heads down the main Port Phillip Channel with a fair wind on a running tide. But it's a vital line all the same the gunpowder line. Or at least it was in the days when most people and everything indispensable came into Melbourne via the port. There's another line, even more obtuse or imagined, a subjective line drawn by people, a line which determines how far they're prepared to go, in what manner they will act, and in the end, what they will risk. These lines give this story a shape and a point. They direct us to a particular time and place where people meet, where events overtake them, and to the places where we remember them. There's a pile of things lined up there, next to the water. Equipment at the ready. A helmet and torches, hatchets and ladders, a curled around hose by a standpipe and tap. It's June 1895, and the ship Hilaria has just anchored in Hobson's Bay after sailing in from New York with a precious cargo. Christopher G is there, down by the water. We'll call him Chris, as those who knew and loved him did. He had first sailed into Hobson's Bay in June 1873 as a 17-year-old brewer's labourer on board the Queen of Nations from Plymouth. He was the eldest boy of nine children, born in Burton-upon-Trent in England, a Staffordshire town famous for its breweries. His father, also Christopher G, was a cooper. At one time, around a quarter of all the beer in Britain came from Burton. From the early 18th century, the canal trade took Burton's beer to the major ports at Hull and London and on to the export trade beyond. In fact, so particular was the chemical composition of the waters of the Trent that a term took its name from the town. Burtonisation, as it was known, entailed adding sulphates during the brewing process to give the beer a hoppy accent, particularly the pale ales that needed to endure the temperature variations on the long sea voyage to India. Chris's maternal half-sister Rose came to Australia aged 19 in 1870 on the Western Empire, and perhaps she sent word home of the opportunities that Melbourne had in store for a brewer's labourer. Rose herself had some of the trade in her blood. In 1876, she was the licensee of the Lord Newry Hotel in Brunswick Street, North Fitzroy. Soon after his arrival in Melbourne, Chris G put down his own roots in Carlton, a suburb where hotels, breweries and building work provided much employment. 
McCracken's City Brewery at the western end of Collins Street was founded in 1851 and was subsumed into the Carlton and United breweries after the 1890s depression. Collingwood was the centre of brewing in Melbourne, but in Carlton, a brewery established by Theodore Rosenberg in Bouverie Street in 1858 was bought by Edward Latham in 1864 and renamed the Carlton Brewery. Those works were extended in 1880 for the Melbourne Brewing and Malting Company. So it was, in Melbourne, the brewing and drinking capital of Australia, the city of a thousand hotels, that Chris G married Jessie Gibson in Barry Street, Carlton, on the first day of February 1878, just six weeks or so after Jessie's father John had died. Jessie hadn't moved far in her life. She was born in Bouverie Street in 1856, her father an iron worker from Paisley in Scotland. He collapsed at home in Kelvin Place off Cardigan Street in November 1877 as a result of injuries from a fall of around 15 feet from a scaffold at Robertson and Moffat's building in Post Office Place. Chris and Jessie lived first in Kelvin Place, at 100 Madeleine Street soon after, and in 1881 moved to 19 Bouverie Street. They were Carlton people through and through. The G's first child, Evelyn, was born in 1879, Charles in 1880, and Jessie, born in 1882, died just two years later. In 1888, we know that Chris was a hotel keeper at the Nugget Hotel in Bouverie Street. A bill of sale in July transferred ownership to the Melbourne Brewing and Malting Company of the Nugget Hotel's furniture, stock in trade, goods and effects. From the bar, one four-pool beer engine, six pictures, one table, two chairs, one piece of oilcloth, one water bottle, six decanters, 28 glasses, three spirit measures, one matchstone, one wash tub, one drainer, one tray. And the curtains and cane chairs from the bar parlour, the bedsteads and bolsters from the bedrooms, the deal table from the card room, the crockery and candlesticks from the kitchen, the meat safe from the lobby, the carpet and horsehair couch from the sitting room, the axe from the yard, and all the stock of wines, beer, spirits and cordials that may from time to time be brought into or upon the said hotel. And the goodwill went along with it all. That same year, Chris G was convicted at the Carlton Court for Sunday trading. A woman was seen coming out of the hotel with some liquor, reported the newspaper, and in reply to the police stated that she'd obtained it from the defendant's hotel. The defence was that the liquor was supplied by a servant to the woman who stated that her husband was ill. No money was accepted in payment for the drink. The bench held the case proved and inflicted a fine of 40 shillings. There's not much more that can be told about the first career of Chris G, son of a cooper, brewer's labourer, hotel keeper. Then, in 1889, a fireman named James Fox perished during a fire at Rob's Buildings in Collins Street. As it turns out, Chris G was the captain of the Carlton Brewery Fire Brigade and Fox was one of his men. At the inquest, 
Christopher G, foreman at the Carlton Brewery, deposed that he knew the deceased who was 46 years of age and had worked as a cooper at the Carlton Brewery. Superintendent David Stein had directed the Carlton men onto the roof because none of their appliances could reach to that height. Witness went onto the roof of the burning building with deceased and another fireman for the purpose of lowering a rope to get a line of hose onto the roof. The fire was then burning through the roof about 40 feet from them. They lowered the line, but it caught on one of the projections of the building, and Witness went down to clear it, the accident happening before his return. The jury found that the deceased had been accidentally killed while in pursuance of his duties as a fireman, and added a rider to the effect that the city corporation should at once procure proper ladders and other appliances for the extinguishing of fires. Fox was coming down a rope when his hands got blistered and he was forced to let go and fell a distance of about 30 feet onto a roof. There were fine lines between scaffolds and ladders, ropes and rooftops. Fox was not alone that black year of 1889. Five other firemen died and were mourned. Captain Parsons of the East Melbourne Volunteer Fire Brigade at the Bijou Theatre fire. John McLeod, South Melbourne Brigade, and Ernest Johnson and Thomas Late, both of the Insurance Brigade, at a fire at George's department store. And John Box following an accident at a torchlight procession. The Carlton Brewery Brigade, as it turned out, was one of the most active volunteer fire brigades in Melbourne in the 1880s, and Carlton's young men made up its brave force. Chris would doubtless have known Thomas McCracken of the Brewery Brigade, who also played football for Carlton. It said he was the drunken player who stole a sheep's carcass from an Adelaide butcher on a footy tour in 1887. But typhoid carried him off in 1889, aged just 25. His coffin was placed on a fire engine and the funeral procession made its way along Bouverie Street, turned right at Grattan Street, headed northwards up Madeline Street, the old name of the northern section of Swanson Street, and headed for the cemetery. Out of the chaos and loss of life in 1889 came the Fire Brigades Act, 1890, leading to the establishment of the Melbourne Metropolitan Fire Brigade in May 1891. Over 50 existing volunteer fire brigades were disbanded and some of their members joined the new Melbourne Fire Brigade, which then went on to provide full-time professional fire protection for the city, jointly funded by state and municipal governments, as well as insurance companies. On the formation of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, Chris G had been offered the position of superintendent, but he was reluctant to relinquish his post in the Carlton Brewery Brigade. So he then became the only auxiliary fireman holding an officer's rank and took charge of the A Division of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade with quarters at Bouverie Street. Chris G's hotel keeping days may have been over, but there was always a fire to fight, rushing off at short notice, Jesse at home with the two children, always fretting until he came back safe to bed. And then, at 2pm on the afternoon of Saturday the 8th of June, 1895, the Hilaria dropped anchor. 
The Hilaria, a fine-looking wooden ship hailing from St John's, New Brunswick, sailed into Hobson's Bay from New York in charge of Captain Allen after a passage of 91 days. She brought a large cargo of general merchandise, including 38,850 cases of kerosene, 635 cases of turpentine, 5,229 feet of walnut, 3,263 feet of oak, 870 cases and barrels of lubricating oils, besides substantial consignments of glucose, printing paper, rosin and soap, manufactured tobacco, miscellaneous hardware, and a case containing detonators. Now, Captain Charles Allen apparently knew about the kerosene and the turpentine and the lubricating oils and all the other bits and pieces in the hold, but it was news to him that there was this box of detonators. There was, in fact, no mention of them on his bill of lading, but the fact that they were listed on the invoice presented by the shipping agent at the Custom House in Flinders Street compelled him to sit his vessel in the outer anchorage, beyond the powder line. An awkward predicament, noted the newspaper on the Tuesday, but a search of the ship didn't turn up the offending items. Alan would later say that when the pilot came on board and told him about the explosives, it made his hair stand on end. Four weeks later, the Hilaria lay at the Port Melbourne Pier, between the Dr Singleton and the SD Carlton, with some of her cargo now taken ashore. Having failed to find the detonators, the captain ran the ship alongside the pier and they were eventually found during unloading. The crew had been paid off and only the captain, his wife and five-year-old son, the steward, the second mate and the watchman remained on board. In the early hours of Sunday the 7th of July, a fire in the lower hold and tween decks sent smoke billowing up the afterhatch into the cabins on deck. Those on board all managed to escape the second mate stirred from sleep in the nick of time by his dog. Chief Officer Stein and 37 men raced to the scene with engines and hose carts. Deputy Chief Officer William O'Brien donned a protective smoke jacket and was lowered into the smoke-filled hold to attack the source of the flames, which were soon brought under control, though much damage had been done. On Monday night, the captain took his family to sleep on shore due to the unpleasant smoky smell of the burnt ship. But just after 3am the next morning, smoke again started to billow from the hatches on the deck. <coughs> Chief Officer Stein arrived with his men to find the hold well alight. As a biting northwest wind whistled into the rigging of the shipping at the port, 40 men and five fire engines set to work, but it soon became clear that the blaze could not be controlled. The engines shrieked and throbbed, according to the newspaper report, as they pumped the water of the bay into the ship, which was wrapped in dense clouds of smoke, occasionally lit up with brilliant forks of flame which shot out of the hatchway and revealed the whole weird scene. The Melbourne Harbour Trust dispatched a tug, the Albatross, to attempt to tow the burning vessel into the bay so the Hilaria could burn down to the waterline without the fire spreading to ships next door or to the Port Melbourne Pier. The mooring ropes were parted, and as Superintendent G stepped backwards towards the waist of the burning and listing ship, he tripped on a chain 
and fell over 20 feet down the fire hatch into the jaws of death. Foreman Butler of the Carlton Detachment made a rush to rescue G, but Stein would not allow it. Deputy Chief Officer O'Brien then stepped forward and claimed the privilege of going below. He and G had been intimate friends, almost brothers for years, and his claim for the post of danger and honour could not be denied. Ladders, ropes, a smoke jacket and an air pump were quickly procured. Bearing in his hands a line to tie his comrade to, O'Brien descended. The seconds passed every minute, seeming like an eternity. Then the knot of firemen gathered around the hatch felt a tug on the line and were then able to haul the semi-conscious O'Brien out, feet first, lucky that his tangled air pipe and lifeline had only deprived him of oxygen for a short time. O'Brien had managed to tie a second line to G and the men frantically dragged him out, desperately hoping he would still be alive. G, alive but barely sensible, was removed to the Dr Singleton berthed nearby, where doctors ascertained he had suffered concussion of the brain, a fractured skull and a broken ankle, and that such injuries were certain to be fatal, despite all that could be done by surgical science. As the next day dawned, it was clear the ship was doomed. As the Hilaria settled down, reported the Argus, the life of Superintendent G ebbed quietly away. He died at 20 minutes past five o'clock. On hearing the news, O'Brien denied the salvation of his comrade's life, cried like a child. There were suspicions and recriminations an inquest into G's death as well as an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding both of the fires. There was talk of strangers on board, insurance claims and missing padlocks, and the fact that there was no love lost between second mate Mark Lindsay and the steward Charles Raven. Was it a case of spontaneous combustion, or indeed of incendiarism? A jury found that the Hilaria had in fact been willfully fired on both occasions, and although Lindsay and the watchman Edward Benson were committed for trial, the Crown abandoned the prosecution due to lack of evidence. There are photographs of the badly burnt ship and sketches in the illustrated newspapers that dramatise the mizzen mast toppling over and the naval brigade trying to sink the vessel with volleys from a 12-pound gun. The wreck of the Hilaria, including its rigging and spars, was auctioned at the Port Melbourne Town Pier on the 5th of August, and later towed up onto the riverbank near Mowling's Candle Works at Maribyrnong by William Phillip, who turned it into swimming baths. Collections were made for Jessie and the children, and acting Governor Sir John Madden wrote her a letter of sympathy, comforting her in the fact that her husband died in the course of noble duty. He wrote another to O'Brien for his noble act of heroism and his desperate valour, which went so far beyond even the highest standard of duty which our nation expects of its best people. Collingwood Council sent O'Brien a letter under seal expressing admiration for his bravery, and he got a gold watch from Members of Parliament, a gold medal from the Metropolitan Fire Brigades Board, and the Clark Medal the blue ribbon of the Royal Humane Society of Australasia. Say, 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 say.
At three o'clock in the afternoon of Thursday, the 11th of July, 1895, a funeral procession set off from G's residence at the Bouverie Street Fire Station, heading for the Melbourne General Cemetery. The lifeboat band led the way, followed by a fire engine acting as a hearse and drawn by four grey horses. The coffin was draped in the Union Jack. G's uniform and helmet placed on the top, barely visible under the wreaths and floral crosses. Next was the hose cart from the Carlton station, again covered in wreaths, one of white flowers with Chris made out in violets in its centre. The morning coaches followed with relatives and members of the fire board, then 150 firemen marching in open double file, with Chief Officer Stein and Captain Allen behind. Then came over 100 employees of the Carlton Brewery on foot and countless carriages bringing up the rear. Wreaths sent to the graveside included one from Mr Latham, Mr McCracken and old comrades from Latham's Brewery. Many a glass of Carlton beer was raised to Chris G that night and many since. And you can still see that pile of things lined up there next to the water, equipment at the ready. The ship Hilaria is listing to one side with smoke and flames billowing from its deck. But the lines of this scene are drawn in stone, the Hilaria in low relief on a monument erected at his grave the year after he died. It's about two and a half metres high, with bluestone basin curbing, the upper section of white Carrara marble. The helmet and torches, hatchets and ladders, that curled around hose by a standpipe and tap, all there, carved out of stone. Chris is there too, down by the carved waves of the port, the letters of his name surmounting the grave. I'd hazard a guess that young Evelyn and Charles stood with their mother by that shining white monument in the Melbourne Cemetery, proud of their hero, keening his loss. But all that talk about bravery, the lines crossed and the lifelines lost, couldn't bring Chris G back to Carlton, to Jesse and the kids. Two brave men went down the hold on that fateful day. Only one lived to tell the tale. William O'Brien would pass away at a ripe old age in 1928, leaving a grown-up family. On the first anniversary of Chris's death, Jessie put a notice in the newspaper to the memory of her precious husband, the father of her children, so dearly loved, so dearly mourned. But it broke her heart, the girl from Carlton, and she died in 1900 of cirrhosis of the liver at the City Hotel in Johnson Street, Collingwood, aged just 44. Take that walk along Carlton Street, saw in your mind's eye, from the south end of Bouverie Street, past the remnant bluestone ale stores of the Melbourne Brewing and Malting Company Limited. Head north over Queensbury, and when you hit Grattan Street, turn right at the Prince Alfred Hotel, then left at Madeline, now renamed Swanston, and soon enough you'll find yourself at the entrance of the cemetery. And without too much trouble, you'll find Chris G with his helmet by that burning ship, his family by his side. A good husband, a fond father and a faithful friend.
My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.